0: Treating cancer starts with knowing you have it. The vast majority of cancers show no symptoms until later stages when treatment options may be limited. In 2021, GRAIL introduced a first-of-its-kind multi-cancer early detection test from a single blood test. On today's episode, I'm excited to have Grail's senior medical advisor, Dr. Whitney Jones. Dr. Jones is a gastroenterologist and cancer screening advocate. He is a former clinical professor of medicine and current adjunct professor in the School of Public Health and Information Services at the University of Louisville. He is a founding member and currently serves as chair of the Kentucky Colon Cancer Screening and Prevention Program. He currently serves on the National Colorectal Cancer Task Force. Dr. Jones joined GRAIL team in 2021 to advance multi-cancer early detection technology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jones.
1: What a pleasure to be here with you, Amy.
0: So we offer the gallery cancer screening test here at Victory Men's Health, and we have a lot of patients that have loved it. And we would love to get more patients to get the word out about the test. So that's why we wanted to have you on the show today to talk about it. So let's start with what is the gallery cancer test? And how many cancers does this test test for?
1: Great. Well, again, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I want to set that up a little bit by just saying right now we screen for four cancers, five if we include prostate, and those four USPSTF cancers, lung, colon, cervical, and breast only account for about 30% of cancers. And and so about 70% of cancers have no screening. So the real impetus behind the GRAIL test and the gallery test specifically is to expand the number of cancers that we can screen for. So the the test is based upon cell-free DNA technology. So all cells in your body as they turn over shed little fragments of DNA, not whole chromosomes, not whole cells, not whole nuclei, but just small fragments, like pieces of a puzzle. And those get into the blood, and then we're able to identify and detect those fragments that arise from tumor cells versus normal cells, utilizing a condition called methylation, which is an epigenomic signature that tags the DNA uh, and sort of modulates up and modulates down certain parts of the genome. And so it is a blood test. Uh, It's based upon abnormal versus normal cell-free DNA in the bloodstream. And it helps us identify cancers, uh, which have no current screening guidelines. And we can get into a little more of what that means in the detail and really what that that new
0: platform is going to look like. So this test is able to pick up on your DNA and distinguish between a healthy cell and a cell that might be carrying cancer.
1: Exactly, it's a a screening test. And so we we look at patterns, if you will, of DNA methylation. And what's very interesting is we don't, even though we detect over 50 cancers so far, we don't have 50 different cancer detections. We have a single common shared cancer signal, which is based on shed DNA from tumors. So the first thing we identify is that common shared methylated DNA signal from cancer. And then if that's positive, we go to a second classifier, which is a a great big name for artificial intelligence and computing power. And that helps us identify with high accuracy where that shared common signal is actually coming from so we can help physicians uh, and patients have a more efficient evaluation and workup.
0: So... You don't need to list all 50 of them, obviously, but maybe list for the listeners some of these cancers that this test is screening for. All
1: right. Well, I know the ones that are on everyone's mind because I'm of the age when, when, when I like to get screened to, I think pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, liver cancer, which is going to be a dramatically increasing form of cancer related to the obesity epidemic, lung cancer, We also evaluate for hematologic cancers, such as leukemias and myelogenous issues, plasma cell neoplasms, common cancer signals seen throughout. Also gynecologic cancers, ovarian is a a very strong signal pickup, but also endometrial, cervical, and colon. So we, we definitely backfill and, you know, we're not... Here to replace any of the current screenings, we just complement them. Meaning, for people who have interval cancers or people who haven't participated in screening. But you know, the the screening tests we have right now work great. Really, this is going from that thirty percent of cancers to almost all cancers. And again, the 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 couple that I would let your listeners know it does not screen for brain cancer because those cell-free DNA fragments don't cross over the blood-brain barrier. And then likewise, tumors that have Low shedding behavior, either because they're turning over so slow, or that they don't have access to the bloodstream, also are very are, are difficult for us to pick up.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask that. Which cancers are you finding that this test is more successful at screening and catching versus which ones have found to be more difficult? Which you just listed. The brain is a
1: big one. Uh, skin cancer is another one. Like we don't really pick up skin cancer until it's already has a a pretty significant depth of invasion, including melanoma. Because again, the technology is based on the tumor being in association with the blood. And again, not tumor cells getting into the blood, but just fragments of that DNA as the cells... Are turning over. So th- those are some examples. We have, we've, we're not as great as we'd like to be in the urinary tract. We've done some recent studies that suggest that uh, the urinary tract cell-free DNA actually is found in urinary specimens. So we're looking and evaluating what's the best way to bring those, those cancers up to the, some of the similar levels that we see for the ones we talked about. I like to think of our test as for those most difficult, most aggressive cancers that currently we have no screening for.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned it's important to point out this does not replace the the screenings that we have in place. So for breast cancer, for prostate, for colonoscopies. But I feel like a lot of people dread doing those screenings. So it's important to point out like this does not replace that. You still have to continue to do those tests. Those are important tests.
1: Absolutely. Th- those tests are based on very high sensitivity based tests. So there's a lot of false positives with them, of course. But they're designed to miss very, very few cancers. And so we absolutely complement those tests. We do not replace them. So sadly, you cannot avoid your PrEP and your colonoscopy uh, by getting a gallery test. And we strongly recommend and, and really want people to follow not only USPSTF guidelines, but if they have a particular condition that their physician thinks should be screened differently, for instance, liver disease or cirrhosis or... BRCA mutations, follow your doctors and individual society screening guidelines. We are here as a supplement, not as a replacement.
0: So when you think of all the different cancers that somebody could have, why in 2023, with all the advancements we've seen in medicine, do we really only have four or five cancers that we screen for really well?
1: That's a great question. First of all, there was a technology threshold that we hadn't crossed. The idea of multi-cancer testing has been around for well over a decade, but we had not reached the sophistication and levels of DNA sequencing in order to really peer down into that DNA and that, uh, that process. The other issue is we didn't have computing power to put together and crunch these huge numbers that occur when you're looking at millions of, of data points within an individual. So that's, that's number one. Number two is many of the other cancers that we're talking about, lymphoma, uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, head and neck cancer. Individually, they're a relatively small percentage of the cancers, of the overall cancers that we seek. So there was no real impetus from a public health standpoint to address a specific screening for a single small incidence cancer. And imagine if you had a screening test for 40 different cancers. Heck, you'd spend every week going for a different screening. There wouldn't be any time to work or or to pay for it. So some of it is a numerical advantage by aggregating all those cancers together. We can use a single analyte such as blood uh, to really test across. So I I believe it's a technological threshold that basically serves a need that's been out there for decades and recognized. But we, we didn't have the technology and the capacity until recently.
0: So how much of this test is reliant on technologies, computers versus laboratory assay development? Because it sounds like it's very heavily intensive, relied on computers and sequencing a large amount of DNA.
1: Well, I think, you know, the DNA has just been getting better and better and better, right? A couple of decades ago, it was $10 million to sequence a genome, and it would take months. Now genomes can be sequenced for, you know, well under $1,000 and take days. So part of it was conceptually, you know, we, we had the concept, but we didn't have the have the goods. So so part of that has been improvements in DNA sequencing. That that's for sure. But the, again, the other part, and really, I, I like to think that this is almost the most important part is this computational biology, computational mathematics, biologically, where you basically you look at the mathematical models. And I'm I'm a psychology major way back in my old days, so. What I would tell you, though, is that the mathematics behind you know, producing these large data sets and creating an artificial intelligence classifier that recognizes patterns, because the, again, this is a screening test, right? It doesn't tell you that you have cancer. It tells you that they're detecting signals that are consistent with a cancer, and that's really important. So I think the AI was, is, is really a key part. And to your, your folks who are listening, to me, the best visual is, is a QR code. Where, you know, to me, I can hardly tell the difference between them unless there's some fancy component, but the computers can accurately read those data points and, and, and on a regular, predictable basis come in with an output from it. So that's the best way for me to to, 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 to sort of bring that home to your listeners.
0: So has Grail always been using AI when they develop this test, or is AI kind of a newer development? How is it impacting this test? And the more data it's getting, is this test getting smarter and smarter as more and more people take it?
1: Yeah, first of all, AI is critical. We could not have done this without artificial intelligence and the machine learning classifiers, because you have to you know, show the machines what these DNA patterns are in people who have known cancers of known stages. And then you've got to basically train the classifier on it. And then the last part is you have to validate it and show that it works in people in cancers that they've never seen before. So that's that's number one. So I, I think that, that that's critical. I think your second question is, will we see improvements in the performance of these technologies iteratively over time? Will they learn? Will they get smarter? And I can absolutely tell you that the whole goal of the team at GRAIL behind this is that we are, you know, this is version one, we expect uh, that as we actually what you're seeing in the market right now is version two, but version one to the public is seeing. But as we move into additional versions, we expect that we'll have improved performance throughout the test. Uh, And again, like anything with artificial intelligence and with technology, we see these iterative improvements, and we expect the same and to see that in GRAIL.
0: It is going to be very interesting to see AI's impact on healthcare. I mean, some might be negative, but the positive, you know, we know some urologists that are participating in a in a study where they're using AI to read MRIs to diagnose prostate cancer and give Gleason scores before a biopsy is ever done. And it's just incredible to think where AI is going to take us on some of this diagnosis stuff.
1: I absolutely agree. I think that you know the, the the evil vision is 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 we work with ai and work for ai i think the realistic vision is we're going to work alongside ai and it's going to be it's going to be a complementary piece radiologists are going to do a better job at diagnosing with computers assisting them i don't believe that computers are going to replace humanity that's not there but perhaps it can do a better job of helping us identify people who haven't been screened and reach out to them and offer screening and you know, I think there's going to be real benefits to it. I think that we certainly need a shakeup in healthcare though. We've got to, we've got to break out from the, 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 the morass that we're sort of found ourselves in the last few years. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. So when should somebody consider doing this test? Like at what age do you think that somebody needs a family history to, to participate in this test? I participated in this test last year. I did one. So since a year, about a year has gone by, should I be considering another one?
1: Well, there's, there's two questions in there. The first one is who should, who should have this test? And cancer, when you look at the factors that drive it, the single greatest driver of cancer is age. So people over the age of 50 are about 13 times more likely to have cancer than people under. The, the other factors which are important are smoking is number two, obesity is number three, and then really four and down are things like genomic syndromes occupational exposures, firefighters, et cetera, people who have immunodeficiency disorders, transplants. So it's a long, long list. So I think that, you know, this test is designed for people who are at an elevated risk for cancer. And the easiest way for us to define that was 50 and above. But certainly there are, 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 could be cases in people under 50 who meet those criteria. And that's an important thing for your listeners to have a discussion with their, with their physicians about and, and, and understand you know, the performance of the test. I think that in terms of the frequency of the test, we really see this as an annual test right now. We just had some amazing data that came out in the American Society for Clinical Oncology that showed that the gallery test was picking up tumors about 320, 25 days before a cancer presented clinically. And the most aggressive cancers, as we know, they tend to go very fast from stage one and stage two into stage three and stage four, all those, those bad actors that we talked about. So we think that the, 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 the right cadence, as we see it right now, is about an annual basis. And again, it fits with everything else we do where we have yearly checkups, et cetera.
0: Are you having more success as the test has been in the market longer with having insurance cover these tests, or is it still mainly a cash pay market?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of different interesting markets in the United States. In terms of an individual getting a test outside of their employee, it's still a cash pay. However, many, many employees are covering this for their employees. Probably the biggest group we see are firefighters, and many of their associations are are covering for it. There are many employers who see and seek to offer this as a benefit to their employees because everybody's working on retaining employees and keeping their best. And, you know, as we get a little older, some of, sometimes we get wiser and more impactful to the corporation. So keeping us healthy and well and alive is, is critical. So those are our two main. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, Medicaid Advantage Issues that are offering it as part of a, a sort of the, a package, but what we really see a lot of things have going on are in healthcare systems, where we see healthcare systems really bringing this in, offering it to patients more broadly. Even understanding that it's a cash pay test right now, but over time, certainly, I think everybody in the cancer field would hope that this would be found to be appropriate and hopefully meet coverage determination and pass appropriate guidelines that we're being set up to work on.
0: And are we allowed to give the cost of the test right now? It's just under a thousand dollars, if I recall, in that eight nine hundred range, somewhere, somewhere like that. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I can, I think I can say that's nine hundred forty nine dollars. I think it's uh, on our website. That's the the uh, list price.
0: Okay, perfect. I think the listeners would enjoy maybe hearing a success story of somebody that you know, a healthy person that decided to to get the test and and was you know, found out in an early stage that they had cancer. I know that you had a good one that you featured on Instagram that, that was reading the life force book that Tony Robbins had, had authored and they write about this, this test in that book. And she decided to go out and get the test and found out like, it's, I think a stage one cancer. So do you have anything like that, that you could tell us about?
1: Yeah, well, what what I'd really say is, I mean, gosh, it's not just one now that we we just crossed a hundred thousand tests in our commercial experience, and I mean, I would say weekly we are hearing about cancers. Probably the most significant one I heard was a fellow who had a, a again a head and the neck signal, and the doctor did an evaluation, kept following him. They really originally didn't see anything. They went on to undergo a second round of, of head and neck evaluations and imaging, eventually found a stage one head and neck carcinoma and was able to be treated with radiation. And I think the, the real drop the mic moment was the, you know, just the fact that the person said, I went to follow up with my doctor and, you know, heck, I was the only one in there with a face, you know, it, you know, that was intact. And so. So I think there's lots of them. We have, we have multiple testimonials that I'd recommend your folks look at on YouTube. And again, it's just that power of being able to identify a cancer when you're asymptomatic. And, and again, there's no guarantee that it will be found at an earliest stage. But knowing it before symptoms develop almost always pretends, uh, you know, we would think a potential for an earlier stage diagnosis and thus a better outcome.
0: What are your thoughts on, you see them kind of in a more of an executive testing and or you see some of these boutique clinics, mainly on West Coast, East Coast, I feel like offering these full body preventative MRIs. I think there's a company, Provuno Scans or something like that. What are your thoughts on doing that type of imaging for cancer detection?
1: You know, it's certainly, you know, it has areas that are good, I think. And then it also has unfortunately so bad. The good ones are you know, it definitely picks up abnormalities. And it also scans for brain cancers, which, again, the gallery test doesn't. And it also scans for a lot of those cancers as well that are not picked up with our USPSTF screening. The issue around it, though, is it also picks up what we call incidentalomas. And uh, that's a that's a funny euphemism for little things that are in every single person's body that don't have anything to do at all with cancer cystic lesions in the pancreas or the liver, the spleen, small areas of thickness that are unclear. And so I think on average, uh, cross-sectional imaging done done in a total body fashion has almost three incidentalomas identified per scan. And particularly if you're scanning for cancer, doctors are going to be really aggressive about calling that. So I would say it has a lot of good points, but I think unfortunately the specificity is really sort of low a lot of a lot of false positives coming out of cross-sectional imaging the gallery test is really designed around very high specificity meaning very very few false positives only five false positives out of a thousand tests that are ordered our, our positive predictive value the likelihood that an abnormal test has cancer is almost uh, 43 44 percent, depending on which one of our studies you look at and I would say the incidental OMAs found at total body MRIs, the positive predictive value is extremely low, meaning people are undergoing a lot of follow-ups and workups for an unlikely diagnosis of cancer. But I, I think they play roles. I think everybody should know the, the goods and the bads. And uh, I think staying ahead of your health issues is is an important thing, and I'm I'm glad people are doing it.
0: So what are you most excited about for the future of cancer screening? What What's coming down the pipe? I'm assuming AI has got to be a big one. But what are you seeing here in the future that you're like, wow, this is this is pretty cool where we're headed?
1: The part that I'm personally most excited about doesn't have to do with new technology. It has to, take, has to do with taking this technology and making sure that we get it to people across the entire spectrum of people in America. An African-American man has 300 percent risk of cancer versus an Asian woman. Who's sort of the the lowest risk, and until we get this testing out to people of all colors, of all socioeconomic statuses, you know, we'll only be you know touching the the tip of the iceberg when it comes to cancer, because as you know, cancer used to be a disease of the affluent because of smoking and drinking and eating, and and unfortunately, it's, it's it's really flipped since the 1990s, and it's having a terrible impact on people who who have issues around their healthcare access their healthcare IQ, a lot of different things. Uh, and so I think that this technological threshold we've passed, our next goal is to get this out and amongst the entire population that we really serve and really looking at everybody having, you know, the same kind of great access to great care and the potential to find cancer early when it can be better treated.
0: Agree with you. That would be amazing. So with specializing, you know, gastroenterologist, colon cancer, do you have any public service announcement that you would like to tell the listeners on that type of screening or, or dietary or whatever it may be? I don't even know. But is there anything that you want to to tell them?
1: First thing I'd say for sure would be remember colon cancer screening has been moved down to age 45. So make sure you get uh, screened with one of the many methods available to you. And, and I think also, you know, the number one cancer group, if you will, as a specialist that's, that gets identified by the gallery test are GI cancers. So esophagus, stomach, liver, gallbladder, pancreas, colon and rectum, and anus. So I think as a, as a gastroenterologist not practicing anymore, I would certainly be looking at, you know, my patients. And, and again, this new technological threshold, we won't be going back from it. And so be careful. The other thing I would have to do in my colon cancer world with my hat on is just remind everybody that early age onset colon cancer is an epidemic in the first world, including the United States. And so people with a family history of colon cancer or polyps, find out with your doctor when you need to be screened. Often it's much earlier than 45. And for young folks out there or anyone who develops signs or symptoms of rectal bleeding, change in bowel habits, pelvic pain. Get to your doctor and get an examination to make sure you don't have colon cancer. Colon cancer is going to be the number one cause of death for people, cancer cause of death for people under age 40, relatively soon. So I think maybe even already.
0: Why? Why do you think that is?
1: I think that it's a function of a first world impact. There are lots of really smart people looking at it. Uh, We think it has probably something to do with either exposures in the environment or maybe intrauterine exposures, sort of a birth cohort effect so we've got lots of really great people working on it. We don't know the answer yet. There may be methylation drift, where something's happened to cause methylation changes. Uh, but what I would say is you don't have to understand meteorology to know to get the heck out of a hailstorm. And so I want, I want your listeners to get screened on time, whether they're at average risk or or elevated risk, and for sure, don't ignore signs and symptoms of young colon cancer because it is a huge epidemic and actually Missouri's in the top 20 states for young colorectal cancer. So, wow. And I know you're, I know you're nationwide, but particularly your home state.
0: You mentioned one of the screenings. So I, I call it the poop in the box, the guard. I mean, do you use that in your practice?
1: Well, I think the best for a- asymptomatic average risk individuals, the most important test is the one you get done. So whether it's a fit test or a Cologuard or colonoscopy, Those all work when they're followed regularly. Colonoscopy has a lot of great benefits, particularly being able to, uh, with a high certainty, identify polyps and remove them to help prevent that whole process. But again, a lot of people don't want to have a colonoscopy, and I just want them to know that other screening exists. And if you follow that and it's positive, you know, we still have a great chance of uh, preventing cancer or finding it early enough to where we can save your life. Amy, I did want to go back one piece. You talked a little bit about the future, and I'm going to move from colon to the future. This technological platform where we're using methylation and artificial intelligence, it's going to continue across the entire cancer spectrum. So for people – we're using it right now for screening and early detection – but we have products in our pipeline for minimal residual disease. So when people get surgery and they say, that we got all the cancer, we can identify that now on a molecular basis. We'll also be helping to identify treatments for certain types of cancers that are really along precision oncology. So we'll be able to choose therapies that work better for a particular type of cancer. And I think we'll also help people who are symptomatic identify they have a cancer is causing those symptoms earlier. So I think this entire threshold of cell-free DNA technology and, and epigenomics coupled with artificial intelligence is going to be the platform we will not be going back for. And I see the next 50 years is really a bright space for us in utilizing it, particularly if we're able to get this to where people across the entire spectrum can benefit.
0: Wow. Well, I really appreciate your time being on the show today. You know, I hope that we get the message out and more people can participate in this test. And we're going to be sure to attach where people can get this test, the gallery and grail website. I'll attach Dr. Jones's information. And, you know, the most important thing we can do here is educate people so they know their options and they get their early screenings and, you know, hopefully save some lives. So I appreciate your time today, Dr. Jones.
1: Listen, I really appreciate being able to talk with you and I love your innovative approach and really getting wellness and and health out there to the folks you guys serve. So thank you again.
0: Thank you very much.